Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Peter Root. Peter is the co-founder of Wildfire Robotics. Wildfire Robotics leverages scalable robotics for complete wildfire containment from initial attack to mop-up monitoring. In this episode, we discuss effective ways to commercialize technology, the difference between an intrapreneur and an entrepreneur, utilizing drilling technology to fight wildfires, insights into how we can currently deal with wildfires and other technology solutions, how to scale robotics from a team and technology process standpoint, and shifting attention from investors to the focus on the wildfire space. Please enjoy my conversation with Peter Root. Peter, I'd like to start with, uh, you took mechanical engineering at UVic. Why why UVic? Why mechanical engineering? Why was that a yeah, focus so for you early on? I grew up on an acreage and grew up fixing things that were broken and, broken and building new things and loved anything to do with something that was creating something from new or fixing something old. And so I was good at science and math in school, and it sort of became a natural path for me to explore engineering. UVic, I grew up in Victoria, so it was my hometown. They gave me the most scholarships out of any of the universities uh, that I applied to, so that kind of um, motivated me to be there. Then they also had a co-op program, and the co-op program, as I learned later in my engineering schooling, was one of the best things imaginable. And they're one of only a handful of schools that do it across Canada as rigorously as UVic does. And so those the combination of things were why I went to engineering and why I went to UVic. And then mechanical, I find, just gives you a really good uh, perspective on how to solve complex problems. And it doesn't necessarily need to be mechanical for the rest of your engineering career, but it's a really good fundamental basis. And what did you want to do after university? Like I saw you were at Warrior Rig. I saw that you almost you spent almost eight years there, which is a long time. And I saw that you kind of just were gradually kind of cl- climbing that, you know, that totem pole there. Uh, wh- why Warrior Rig? Was that something that you did right out of university? Yeah, so that or? was a co-op term that I did while I was at university. It was my last one. I worked there for four months as an intern. And, you know, I remember distinctly in that experience, designed something, and then two weeks later, there it was, and I put it together with the with the people on the floor 
put stuff together and I was hooked. I was like, oh, I can, I can design something and we can build it and we can put, go and do something useful with it. And uh, fortunately, Warrior offered me a job right out of uh, university. They actually offered it before I graduated and, you know, I needed money to pay off student loans and all that good stuff. So I took it and moved to Calgary and I've been here ever since. And I worked for Warrior for eight years. In the first two to five years was spent uh, just building up my expertise in mechanical, electrical, control systems, and hydraulics and pneumatics, because all the equipment we built there had features of all those things. And it was a fantastic learning experience because I got to flesh out my skill set beyond just mechanical. And very quickly, within two years, I was managing the intellectual property development for the organization and managing small teams, commercializing pieces of equipment. And Around year five, I was instrumental in developing a new technology, and we went out and raised $7.5 million for that project, sort of as an entrepreneur within the company. And that that technology was instrumental in the sale of the company in 2016, so that was six years after I joined. And then there was a period of three years where we developed more technology with the company until, until I left in about 2019. Uh, but it was very formative uh, because I think re three really big lessons were if you're doing something new in terms of technology, you're going to have to iterate. So don't think you're going to get it right the first time. Um, so then knowing that, build it with iteration in mind. Like build it so that you can change key features. If there's something you're uncertain about, make sure it's something that's not super expensive to make every time. Because otherwise you might not get enough chances to get it right. Um, and then the second thing is operations. So I just started to love talking to my field group. And in, in fact, I was, a field, I was on the field service uh, phone for uh, over a year, which is quite an interesting um, experience for any, any engineer. And I actually recommend that every engineer do that. Actually, like talk to your end user and, he, and hear what problems they have at, you know, middle of the night when it's minus 40 uh, in the winter here in Calgary. Um, you learn a lot. And that's where the problems come filtered back to the company. So if you don't have an engineer doing that role or, or at least being field service of some capacity, I found that those learnings didn't come back to the engineering group. So that's something that going forward, I'm just carrying forever that I, I always make sure there's a link between what's happening out in the field and the engineering team that's designing new stuff or sustaining old stuff. Um, yeah. So, and then, and then the third thing was um, with teams. So I built two or three teams within warrior and I tried all sorts of management systems um, and they're okay, but strong teams with very simple systems is way better. You mentioned commercialization there and like taking this new technology, raising money internally as like an entrepreneur. What did you really learn about that process of commercializing new technology, especially if, you know, if it's like a hardware or, you know, something like that? Um, it's just kind of a hot topic right now. So I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, maybe what worked well in your specific case and maybe things that you're kind of taking over to yeah. wildfire i reflected on it quite a lot in the past because i was fairly new in my career and i was just i was pretty gung-ho and i just sort of went for it but what i found was we did probably between 50 and 70 presentations of like here's this new idea of how we're going to drill wells in a completely new way with new equipment we're going to be this much faster and blah 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 and uh, one of the things i found was that it's really worthwhile to take the time to explain why you're doing what you're doing and all the things you've thought through. Because what can happen very quickly is, is someone with a lot of operational expertise will start nitpicking and, and sort of destroy your case before you even had a chance to make it, which was, 
um, you know, I didn't know as much about their businesses as, as they did. So I felt, you know, I wanted to listen to what they say, but I found I would actually start a meeting sometimes and say, Hey, give me 15 minutes. Let me explain it from start to finish. I'll probably answer a lot of your questions and then let's get into a discussion. And the flip side of this though, was that period after 15 minutes often went an hour, two, three hours sometimes. And that's where we refined what we were doing to a level that where we got to where we actually got funding. So many ideas came from those discussions, enhancements to the technology, uh, points of concern where it's like, hey, that wouldn't work. You should change this. And it was that was transformative, really. So I'd say like the first 10 meeting, 10 meetings, we were like, this is the best thing ever. And then the, then the, the subsequent meetings were like, hey, this is a really good idea, but we want your opinion. Hear us out and then let's discuss. And that worked wonderful. Um, and I think we ended up at a better a better product and a better business arrangement because of all that work. Um, so that's that's one thing that really came to mind. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were doing were between companies. We didn't really have some investor group coming in, so it's different from a startup. But bridging the gaps between companies, and this was a three-company deal, so there was three parties involved. Getting people bought in, having influence early was critical. So, you know, we could have done the, an arrangement where Warrior, the the, the company with the technology just did all the development and then said threw it over the fence and said hey hey guys use it uh, and that wouldn't work so we actually got their operational folks in very early to provide feedback and to and to get ownership in the process so that when they got it they're happy with it and that was that was crucial and in fact I think we could have done a better job at that it's it's often very difficult because those operational people are busy doing other things and it's hard to bring them into a product development team but I found that you, you have to do that. So ultimately you leave Warrior. I saw you went to Deloitte for a bit, kind of on the shred side. Looked like I was looking at the timing there and it seemed to overlap with Backseat Bivy. I think I'm saying that right. But why the shift over to kind of Deloitte and what was Backseat? So in 2019, um, the parent company of Warrior moved the majority of operations down to the U.S. It was also a really hard time for, for new drilling equipment. And I didn't want to move to the U.S. at the, t at the time. Um, my family's in Victoria and Calgary. I wanted to stay in Canada. So, so I stayed up here and, and I actually took, I, I took a job um, four days a week and I earmarked a fifth day for creative endeavors on purpose. And that's because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do yet. I had this amazing eight-year run at Warrior where we were doing really cool things and then they all came to a halt and I thought, well, I'm not sure what I want to do next. So I worked with a company called Coreline Pipe, amazing group awesome technology, transformative stuff. And they're on a, they're on a rocket ship themselves. Which it was pretty cool to be a part of. And on the fifth day I worked on various things. Um, so, so that was the time where I developed the backseat baby with two partners. And it was actually an individual that I met at warrior. He's a honest to goodness dirt bag. He quit his job and climbed for like a year. And he was, he was having problem where he wanted to sleep in his car, but there wasn't enough length to sleep when you fold down the rear seats. And he said, oh, there's got to be something super simple that would bridge that gap that I could just have with my gear and always have around and then I can sleep wherever I want. And so we designed that, we built it, and we sold over 700 units. We're in REI online. We're on our way into Mech. There's a patenting process. We've got an overseas manufacturing partner. It was, it was amazing. Uh, and I learned how to sew, which was kind of cool. Um, but did that, did that prototype. And I, I always wanted to launch a commercial product like that, just kind of sort of simpler product development uh, process. And it was a great experience. I learned a ton. Uh, the company's still going. I'm not really um, directly involved anymore. 
for the product development, but I'm still, you know, around a little bit. And then Deloitte came about because I did did some of the shred claims with Warrior, and Deloitte was representing Warrior at the time. And uh, then the, the manager of there said, hey, you're, you're pretty good at this. Why don't you come do some work? And that was a way for me to do some consulting work and, and do other things at the same time. Where did the idea come from for Wildfire Robotics? It, was it one of those, you know, that, that the creative day that you had and you just had the idea come to you? Um, it's just so interesting. And I know we had a, a chat a few months ago about it, but I, I just, I'm just very curious of where that idea came from. You know, like obviously it's an obvious problem that you're fixing, but how did you know, like, hey, like this is how I want yeah, to I'd love to take credit for the idea, but it, it wasn't mine. Um, so I worked with an individual named Alan Richardson for the whole eight years I was at Warrior. In fact, he was my boss and mentor for that period of time. And he's one of these just inventors. He really thinks deeply about a problem, gets to the root of it, and then builds up ideas and ways to, to improve it. So, so he was the one with the original idea. But if I back up, back to 2016, which is a, a formative year for Alberta in wildfires, uh, for about a decade, I'd gone camping every May with a bunch of friends. We'd go Maylon camping. That's sort of the traditional start of summer for Canadians. And in 2016, two of my friends didn't show up. And that's because they had to pack up their home in Fort McMurray in very short order and evacuate because the wildfire that uh, devastated most of the town. And it was a bit of a wake-up call. I mean, I hadn't been super aware of, of wildfires growing up in Victoria. There are wildfires on the island, but they mostly happen on interior BC. And then 2017, 2018, I was noticing the increase in smoke, in particularly in Calgary, but in Western Canada and, and the U.S. as well. And I had a lot of conversations with Al at the time. I remember talking way back then about, hey, you know, we got to do something different in wildfire. Like, there's got to be some solutions out there. We were always thinking about new ideas for our business. So we chatted about things like that. So in 2020, he approached me with this idea. And and it leverages a lot of what is done in oil and gas drilling. When you think about oil and gas drilling, you're, you're assembling a long, skinny thing that can uh, transmit water or fluid. You're steering it long distances, and you're controlling it only from one end. And so his idea was, well, can we adapt that sort of system and do that at great distances on the surface of the earth so that instead of flying water retardant, we can distribute it using a pipeline, which is much more efficient and effective and, and safe. So he started building a prototype. I started building a prototype in late 2020. And in 2021, I quit and we formed a company and we've been working on it ever since. And both of us come from an enthusiastic background of outdoors recreation. So whether that's running or hiking or climbing or whatever. So we spent a lot of time in rough areas and, you know, I think we wanted to lend our energy and experience to something really worthwhile. It's really interesting with like the initial idea and okay, we could take this drilling technology and could we theoretically use it for wildfires? Can you talk me a bit through like, okay, that initial prototyping stage, but then into how do we make this thing actually work? How does this thing scale? How can we actually use it in the real world? Um, is there different like step jumps there with like, okay, prototyping is one and then what's after that and then kind of validation or yeah. how do you look at that? So prototyping is an incredibly fun time uh, for any engineer because you're designing with iteration in mind. Like you're designing so that lead time on parts is a day or less so that you can try it change it, keep going and keep learning. And you want to learn as fast as you can because there's so many unknowns at that time. So what we did is we built a, a small scale prototype and it's approximately quarter scale of what it can be overall. 
And uh, we did that with stuff we could quickly make ourselves, things that we could make with our own tools, um, inexpensive materials and parts that are readily available or can ship within one day. And over the course of a year and a half, we built up the third, the third iteration of the prototype, but to, to full functionality. And so, you know, what the what what we're working on is uh, is a robot, and it's a really long robotic snake that can self-propel itself and navigate long distances over rough terrain. It can do that at distances up to about 10 kilometers at once, and then it can strategically and remotely control the spray of a fluid, so water, foam, or retardant, anywhere along that length, that length, and use sensor feedback to determine where best to distribute that water. So you could use visual or thermal imaging determine where the where the hot portions of the perimeter of the fire are, how it's advancing, satellite imagery, all those types of things, so that you can basically automate and mechanize firebreak deployment on the landscape, and then do containment of the fire, mop up of the fire, and monitoring of that perimeter, and response to perimeter changes in near real time. So the prototype was, okay, can we deploy a long, skinny, flexible thing in rough terrain, which in engineering school you're told not to do, which is to push a rope. Uh, that was that was That was challenging for sure, but we built different versions of it and tested it through various and increasing complexity of trains and, and have been very successful at doing that. A second part was, can we distribute water effectively along this length and get a good distribution of a fluid in dense uh, vegetation types? So if you can imagine you're in really dense bush or you're up against a tree and you have a nozzle pointing at it, that's not going to do very good, right? Because you're not spraying water on the other side. So we had to make sure we could move these nozzles forward or back. We could orient these nozzles in space and we could turn them on and off. And with those three things, we can distribute water fairly effectively. Um, and then the third element was, well, can you use a system like this to stop a fuel, stop a fire mid fuel? So those are the three big objectives of the prototypes. We built it so we could do those things, but at a small scale. And uh, throughout 2021 and 2022, we did over 11 different um, terrain deployments. We sprayed uh, water in five different environments from three different sources. So we did it from a slough, from an irrigation canal, and then from a, a water source, like a city water source. And then we built, uh, this was a really fun day of work. We built a fire. So we built a 40 foot by 60 foot by four foot fuel bed. And then we lit one end on fire, deployed our system across in the middle of the fuel and see, and when we measured how much water it took to stop the advance of that fire. Um, so really we've been trying to prototype quickly with, um, things we can iterate on, but we know that we have to we have to move up a notch. You sort of mentioned like how do you scale up? So the next version we want to build we call a beta prototype or a beta system. So that the alpha was pretty small, so only about 100 feet at once could be about 200 feet maximum because of the diameter we're using for distributing water. So the size up with the beta that can be up to one kilometer. It keeps the same form factor, so it doesn't get bigger or wider or anything. Um, and then we're in, incorporating things we learned from the alpha in it. But this type of system, we could go out and do real, like real live fire tests with wildfire agencies and really get a lot of better understanding of the system. But the alpha was incredibly useful. I mean, we did a pilot demonstration with Alberta Wildfire this summer, and it was such an amazing experience to have people out there looking at it and go, oh my goodness, it can go through the boreal forest. Like it, it can solve a problem for us, and it got them really excited, and so we're looking forward to working with them over the next year. You mentioned earlier finding parts that are ready, readily available. I just finished Elon Musk's new book, and he's talking about SpaceX and 
how they could go to a hardware. He wanted to go to a hardware store to find parts because they were way <laughs> cheaper than from somewhere else. So can you just talk to me a little bit about, I guess, those kind of like almost first principles, fundamentals from building a hardware solution from an engineering standpoint, um, you know, just finding the right parts, making sure those are readily available, keeping costs low. Like, how do you really think about that? It's out of necessity for us because we, we're, we're bootstrapped. So, you know, Wildfire Robotics is funded from myself and my, my business partner, Alan Richardson. So we have to, like, it's just, you, you can't do You can't do it any other way, but you also want to, because you want to, you want to be able to learn quickly. So one of the things we've jokingly said to each other in the past is if it's not one day delivery on Amazon or McMaster car, redesign it, <laughs> which is like, sounds, you know, if I told myself that five, six, seven years ago, I, I probably laughed at myself, but now I, I firmly believe it. Like, oh yeah. And um, even sort of um, there's elements too where you go, okay, there is an off the shelf part that does this thing for us. They produce tens of thousands of these things. We could probably design one that's better and more purpose built for us. And we'll do that one day in the future. But today we're just going to buy it because it's there. It probably works. And we don't have to engineer the little issues with that, but we can refine it later on. We took the same approach for our electronics, um, although we did it at a really tough time. So we're using Raspberry Pis for our electronics in the early days. And there was a massive Raspberry Pi shortage. So something that was supposed to cost $35 was $200. But fortunately, there's a lot of alternatives to Raspberry Pi ecosystem. So we were able, we were able to buy some banana pies, which is a pretty funny spin on that. Um, and we, we still were able to get them and use them. But again, we're kind of using hobbyist level electronics, which are far cheaper than industrial. Don't come with long-term use contracts and software. The skill set for doing it is sort of widely taught and widely available. So there's lots of resources for every single chip we use, every single board we used. Uh, a lot of the problems we were encountering, someone else had already done it and it was for publicly available form level information or we could go to a makerspace in Calgary and ask some really smart people about it. And so that made it way easier to do. Um, you know, I have great respect for Siemens for their electronics, but they're very expensive, time consuming, and their lead times are like a year. That's that's not feasible for a company of our size. So yeah, we just, we just designed that way. And then for our materials, you know, we did things that we could modify in-house and buy in-house, it's in a garage. And then for the material types, just stuff that was at Home Depot, honestly, because if I was short something, I could go there and come back. Or if I was short something and I was out in the field testing on a prototype scale, I could go to Home Depot and come back. Um, or if I needed to modify something, I could do it with a drill or, or some, some sort of grinding tool or, you know, whatever. And it, it was fundamental to our success to date. If we had not done things that way, we, would have, we wouldn't have got as far as we've gotten. I think anyone listening to this will be familiar with the impact of wildfires, right? So the smoke, the fire, everything there. But can you talk a little bit about how does a fire, you know, start? And like, what are some solutions? Like we have all seen the water bombers if we're out in Kelowna or the Okanagan, for example. Um, but is it kind of prediction with kind of prevention mixed with like, you know, doing something after, I guess, like, what does that process look like right now? And where will wildfire yeah. robotics slot in? So I think I'll back up and sort of set, set a stage and um, sort of explain a few things that have gone on, particularly in wildfires, and particularly in North America, 
for the past hundred years that are contributing to what we're now all experiencing. So three really big changes or things that have happened and okay, you're back, um, that have happened in that period is there was something called the 10 o'clock rule, which still applies in some places. And that's that you, you put out a fire as soon as you can, which is advantageous when it's in a very populated area. But one of the side effects or unintended consequences of that is it is it amounts to massive fuel accumulations on the landscape because because fire is a natural, inevitable and necessary thing. And we actually need it in a lot of different areas in North America. And it's in environments that are called fire adapted landscapes. Certain species of trees require fire for their pine cones to open up and for new trees to grow. So we've sort of artificially prevented wildfires from occurring for for 100 years and done a pretty good job at that. Second thing is that humans in North America have expanded and we're living in more and more areas and everyone wants to live near the forest in the in the mountains and you know where there's picturesque scenery. So we have more things that interact with with wildfire, often called the wildland urban interface and it's been expanding at about 40 percent over the past four years or something. So it's it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So when wildfires do occur, they affect more things. And the third thing is we're seeing a longer wildfire season for depending on where you are between three and six weeks and a drier summer. So if you have a drier summer, there's greater propensity for wildfires to occur. Two other things going on there too is we have we have changed the landscape for farming, agriculture, and forestry. Some forestry practices aren't good for wildfires, like monoculture uh, plantations, um, especially if like um, pine doesn't doesn't do well, especially if there's a pine beetle that comes in and, and kills all the trees. Um, and the third thing, or the fifth thing, is with more human activity, there's more chances for wildfires to start and then take off in the landscape. So that, that's sort of the stage, and that's where we are now in 2023. Obviously saw that in our wildfire season this year in Canada. So now if I talk about what are the methods, um, so typically what happens is there's something called initial attack. I'll just start with legacy methods, sort of what by and large we're doing today. So an agency like Alberta Wildfire has... Uh, a, a risk scale for how likely it is for a wildfire to start in any different given area. And then there are certain resources available for deployment. And that could be a five, five minutes and that plane's got to be in the air or five minutes and that truck's got to be on the road, or it could be 30 minutes or an hour or two hours, depending on the risk level. And then the methods used are aerial bombers, like we've probably seen. So those are either fixed wing aircraft or helicopters that are taking water foam, or retardant and dropping it in strategic areas so that you can slow the advance of a wildfire. And that's typically done on initial attack. Then there's hand crews. So those are people that go into areas and they form fire breaks with manual methods. So that's sprinkler lines, fuel removal, um, brush removal, could even be backburns, and I'll get into that in a bit. The third is dozer guard construction. This is very common uh, up here where and, and in the U.S., where you take a dozer and you strip down to mineral soils, so you remove all the fuel from that interface. Sometimes it's done during the day. Uh, Alberta does a lot of it at night when the fire intensity is a lot lower. And then this is all during initial attack, and you're trying to basically contain that fire as quickly as possible and then, and then put it out, mop it up, and make sure it's out. What often happens, though, is you get to a phase where that fire gets big very quickly because it starts on a high-intensity day. So a high-intensity day could be hot, windy, lots of lightning or dry lightning, which is often when wildfires start. 
and it takes off to an enormous size very quickly, and it, and it takes off and gets to an intensity where it's really hard to use any of our tools against. Like, it's just simply too big. So it gets really big really quickly. Then the weather or the local conditions change, and then it's kind of smoldering, but its, it's perimeter is hundreds, well, depending on the size of the fire, could be hundreds of kilometers. And so you have this big perimeter fire that's all hot and all burning, and then what typically happens is the agencies go to an indirect attack mode, where now they, it's like sort of a long-term campaign on this large wildfire that exists in the landscape. So they'll use dozer guards more frequently than aerial drops. They'll do sprinkler lines and they'll do and manual methods and they'll do a lot of backburns. And it is an amazing, amazing thing that they do. The, the skill set for doing backburns is almost an art. Um, there's I just want to give one story that blew my mind, but they do a backburn and they do it strategically so that the plume of smoke blocks out a certain portion of the fire, which is in a certain type of fuel that they're worried about. Like that's a level of sophistication they're doing with these backburns. And then they also do the backburns in an area where they want the fire to go to where to where they've done that backburn because there's a fire there, there's heat, there's an inrush of air, so the surrounding fire will come to it. So they're playing this game of drawing the fire to the areas they want to burn that might be closer to a good fire break. Either they've made one or naturally existing. And then once the perimeter of the fire is out, they have to do something called mop-up, where they put water on the perimeter of the fire a certain distance away from their containment line. And they have to do that for the entire perimeter of the fire. So when you see hundred or contained, that's what that means. It means they have a they have a guard of some kind and they're wetting that perimeter. And they, so they get water into there by all sorts of means. So they sometimes can use that dozer guard as a road, but often not, especially in Alberta, because it's muskeg. They fly water in, they drag water in manually, they helicopter people in, whatever they can do to get water to that interface. And so that so that they can cool it down, put the fire out, and make sure that that perimeter doesn't flare up again and then take off, which can happen a lot of the time. Uh, and then they, then they monitor it. So that's sort of the indirect, uh, direct and indirect attack methods. And that's, that's primarily the legacy methods of how we combat wildfires. And there's differences in different jurisdictions and different agencies um, in different parts of the world, but, but those are the primary methods. The emerging technologies are what you kind of mentioned about satellite imagery, early detection, early suppression, and those focus on the, on the early start, early phases of the fire, which are really important. There's, there's instances where you can very easily uh, show a case study that if we had had, you know, really fast detection and really fast mitigation, you could prevent massive losses or, or massive impacts, which is great. The issue and sort of our thesis is that, well, as good as that is, we can't we can't go to a scenario where we have no wildfires. Because then when one does break out, it's going to be so massive that we can't deal with it. Um, and then we're fundamentally changing the, the ecosystem because we're not allowing that natural low intensity fire to occur. And we want that to occur. So we think we slot in kind of in this middle area. If there's, uh, I'll start this way. If there's uh, er, um, prevention and mitigation, suppression and remediation, we think we're actually the first two things. So when a wildfire is large in the landscape, you can use our tool to form robotic fire breaks that can contain, mop up, and monitor wildfires, and we think that's really good. We can also play a huge role in allowing fuel treatments to be done on the landscape at scale. Fuel treatments. It's often prescribed burns. So you're doing a low intensity burn in an area to reduce the fuel load 
restore natural ecological cycles. And then you have an area on the landscape that will burn at a lower intensity when a big wildfire comes. And there's, there's countless examples of how effective this is. It also lowers overall carbon emissions. So if you prescribe burn something and then it burns, your overall emissions is way less than if you don't do anything. So we want to play a part in that. So we really want to play a part in prescribed burns. So having a tool that has trust so that you can do lots of prescribed burns and then a tool for suppression when those wildfires are large, because they, they will continue to be here for probably 50, 100 years, even if we get super good at early uh, detection and mitigation. And in fact, we still want those wildfires to occur. So, so we want to be a separation tool so we can have good wildfire on the landscape. Selling your solution, right? So everyone is, again, aware of the problem. There's, you know, an environmental impact. There's, you know, even a potential loss of human life or property and damage and everything that can go with that. So what has the process been with working with different government bodies or different fire departments or maybe even like private ownership? How do you kind of think about sales and, and building? In the beginning, it's all to ultimately about relationship building. So find key people who believe in trying something new and believe in what you're doing and then work with them to, to make those things happen. Um, so we've been, we've had formed a really good partnership with Alberta Wildfire and they've offered us all sorts of different things to advance our technology, make sure we're doing things properly and not falling into pitfalls and all that stuff. And it's a fairly long sales cycle. So for a government agency, that's probably two, three years, um, in what I'll call the off season. So when we don't have a technology we can just use, like just show up and do some good then we have to go through this type of sales cycle where it's it's a bit longer. We're doing stuff in the off season, setting up things and pilot demonstrations for the fire season. Uh, but it's it's actually it's it's fairly um, it's fairly smooth because a lot of people in wildfire are looking for new solutions. They're looking for different ways to interact with the fire because they're they're seeing and they're living the the hardships of of not winning and not protecting things and seeing large wildfires break on the landscape and having no ability to do something about it or frustration of not being able to conduct the prescribed burns that they want to do. Uh, so that has been fairly, fairly good, but it is a, it's a complicated uh, process and you have to really build those relationships over time. So we have a few bits of interest from some national parks who want to see our system in their landscape. Um, Alberta wildfire, I said, uh, and then there are some private asset owners who, are in places where they've experienced evacuations or or their properties have been threatened, and they're interested in us coming out and showing it. All of those things, though, so everything we've done today requires a physical prototype, and that's because anyone in wildfire, they don't want a boardroom presentation. They want to they want to see it. They want to kick it. They you know, uh, it, they want to see it themselves. Go through the train and do it well. Distribute water well. And be easy to use. And then if they see that, then they'll just say, okay, yeah, let, let's let's try it. Let's let's do some paid pilots next year, or let's formalize a contract so you can come out and do work. So we're finding success that way. Where we want to get to ultimately is have a have a tool that's ready, because we've had instances where we've been asked to come out, but we don't have something at scale yet. And so I can imagine a future, especially next year, where we do some sort of higher scale pilot demonstrations with someone like Alberta Wildfire. And it works. And then it's just gonna be a matter of time before someone says, Hey, you guys wanna come out? Like we're struggling with doing you were struggling with making a fire guard here, or we're struggling with mop up here. And that that is that is when you're gonna really start to gain momentum. Um and a 
we've gotten some advice from, from from some others who have implemented new technology in wildfire, and it's all about doing it. You know, you got to show up and prove yourself that you can do it. So that's where we have to get to. Do I think really kick off a um, traction in terms of sales and um, and our customers? How do you think about it from a business model perspective? Will wildfire robotics be a service based business, and you're getting kind of contracts, and then you're deploying? Is this a system that you're looking to sell to the end user and they, they'll be able to use it themselves? I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on like the business models, a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I, I remember reading some report of like how much some of these water bomber planes are and like the expense there. So like, how do you kind of look at that from a standpoint? If I back up to the first eight years of my career, we were an OEM uh, company. We built a piece of equipment and we sold it to our end users. We also had some rental and service agreements as well. So more on the OEM sales, less on the service. I think at Wildfire Robotics, the first three years out of necessity will be service. So we will we will build it, design it, we'll come out and use it on the behalf and at the instruction of wildfire agencies, do a lot of learning, refine the product. But very quickly, I think our the demand for the service is going to outpace our ability to support it and we'll transition or do a hybrid approach to, uh, using OEM sales especially for organizations, groups, resorts, uh, municipalities that want a system for, for, for basically wildland urban interface protection. Um, then they could buy a system and have it for them on standby to be deployed when something threatens their key assets. So that's, and then, and then also wildfire agencies that are outside of our jurisdictional reach. So I can imagine that we will probably stay service oriented in Alberta and BC for quite some time and be doing sales outside of that because uh, a service business in a seasonal uh, environment can be very challenging. We saw that in our old business just because of the ups and downs of the market, but it, it does create challenges. Whereas focusing on being a design company that makes a really great product that takes time to you know, procure everything and manufacture and sale, then you can have a sustainable business throughout the entire year, which is, which is important recognizing that wildfire is seasonal. You mentioned earlier scaling robotics and the challenges there. What are your thoughts on how to scale hardware robotics, how to make get this to a, a large scale business, as well as also kind of the talent? And like earlier in the conversation, you mentioned, you know, when you have readily available parts and easy to understand hardware that you're building with, like it's an easier kind of to find that talent. So do you think about that too, when you're scaling the company? Um, hey, like this would, will be easier to yeah, find actually, talent. To be honest, Evan, I hadn't thought about it that way. Like, can you, can you design a system so that you can have uh, a skill set that's uh, reaches a, you have a wider, wider skill set that you can pull from. Uh, so I think there, there's elements of that, that that can be true with our design methodology. Although as we get bigger systems, as we increase the reliability and robustness of systems, things will get more complex, you know, uh, so we will need specific skill sets for that. That said, though, I think keeping what we can very simple will enhance our ability to attract uh, good talent and get it quickly and get to work, which is important for scaling. Um, so, so scaling means to us is just how, how do we do something that we used to do in six months on a prototype and do it in one week? I think it's, it remains that core principle of keeping things simple that are readily available because then if 
say you get some parts from somewhere and they're wrong, or because which happens all the time, you can, you can turn that around really quickly. But if you're using bespoke materials and bespoke processes to create those things, those things can absolutely cripple you um, when you're trying to react to a demand of sales. Fortunately, the way our system works is it's modular. So we have right now in our beta system, we have 20 foot lengths. So everything is 20 foot lengths. And there's basically three different versions of those lengths. The, the bulk of the system is very mechanical pieces that basically just follow along with everything else. We build a lot of those. Then we have active sections. These are things that have a brain in them. They can move, they can kind of articulate, and those are less frequent. And then we have spray sections. So this is a section that controls all the spray stuff. And those are about the same. They're a little bit more frequent than the um, active sections, but not as frequent as the basic sections. So the basic sections are the things we build a lot of, and they're fairly simple. Um, and we're designing it so that the assembly of that is fairly simple. We're, we're not going, we're not optimizing for manufacturing at the moment. We're optimizing for iterating, but we are keeping those things in mind so that if we did have to turn around tomorrow and build out, you know, two kilometers of beta system, it's in such a way that it wouldn't be awful. And then we can work and learn on ways to make that faster. Uh, but the modular makeup makes, I think, scaling really, really nice that you got to build, you know, a hundred of the 20 foot section. You got to build 20 of these actives and 20 of these sprays. And you, you, if you can do something over and over again, you get really good at it. Um, and that's nice compared to having built, just build one robot that you want to build one of, you know, we've already built, uh, 30 of our 10 foot sections on our alpha system. So we've already learned how to get better at that. In that entrepreneur kind of role and raising money for this new technology. What has that been like now as an entrepreneur with your own business? What is it like uh, raising money? Do you have a kind of a game plan behind that? Is there certain investors like, you know, does, does wildfire fall in like clean tech and sustainability funds? Is it more like deep tech hardware? Is it a yeah, bit of both? When we started this in 2021, wildfire tech wasn't really on the scene. Um, there, you know, people didn't use the term fire tech back then. Uh, they do now. So there's actually some emerging, uh, there is one particular um, fire tech only VC firm called Convected Capital. They're out of California and we have an ongoing relationship with them, which is, which is fantastic. They've been really good at steering us in the right directions for giving us some high level advice. Um, and we think they will be a long-term partner over time. Um, but we do, we, we kind of fall in that climate, um, clean tech, deep tech bucket. But we're playing in a space where we have to do a lot of education to our investors. And I think that's where I fell short in the beginning is I, I didn't realize how much teaching I have to do because I actually had one call with a VC firm and, and I was talking to the analyst and they said, we are just now exploring wildfire as an investment space. We don't really understand it right now. And I was like, oh, cool. Okay. Let me tell you everything I know. And then I, you know, I'm going to follow up with them once they do that, that research and understanding and then come back. So we're, I think we're approaching a time where there's a lot more uh, dollars being put into wildfire. And we're seeing that, um, especially in early detection, but I think it's happening across the board and it's happening in hardware now too. So there's a really cool company called Burnbot that has a, a fire Zamboni. So it, it, it's really cool. So it just drives over the landscape and it burns underneath it. It captures all the smoke and then it, then it keeps growing and it basically paints a burnt line on the landscape then you can do low level prescribed burns and the fire will just burn up to that black line and stop 
So for areas where you're like close to a school or a hospital or places in California, fantastic. And the group there is, is really awesome. So that's a, that's a hardware solution um, that, that people have invested quite a bit of money in. And, and I think now there's a pool of investors are going, oh, we missed BurnBot or we missed Earthforth Ventures, which are doing mastication tools for fuel treatments. And they're going, well, we want to put money into this because we recognize how big this problem is. So I think we're well, we're well positioned to be very investable in this space, um, which is, which is fantastic. But the other, the other thing I learned too, is that investors want, want, want that customer. They want, they want you to be able to prove that you can go out and get a customer that they're going to pay for it. And then they want it now. And it took a, it took a long time for us to do that because we had to build a prototype. We had to get it in front of a customer. And we, we, unfortunately, we did that in one of the busiest wildfire seasons, in, uh, the busiest wildfire season in Canada's history. But we still got to go out and do a test with Alberta Wildfire, which has given us, um, we're going to go into contract negotiation this fall. So that will give us a, a mechanism to be paid in the next year. And I think that's a really key thing for us to attract investment dollars. Super interesting to see kind of the space grow and even like just investors are just focused on that. I'd like to jump into the quick fire round and I'd like to know what your favorite book is. And if it's hard to pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading yeah, or want so to read. At the risk of um, being contrarian, I I really like a book called Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And it and it's uh, it can be quite polarizing for people to read. I've read it twice. I really like the, the story of the industrialist struggle, but and I don't quite fully understand it yet, but I come back to it and I read it. And when I read it, I get a different, I have a different perspective every time I read it. So, so that, that would be uh, my, my current favorite book in terms of what I want to read next. Um, I do read a lot of books about startups and entrepreneurship, but I also read just a ton of fantasy. So I'll spare you that detail. What are you most excited about in the next year personally uh, and, and professionally? I just had our first son three weeks ago. So uh, honestly that it's, it's a real, real joy having a, uh, your own child in your house. It just gives you a different sense of life and what a, what a thing to, to have happen. Um, and professionally it's building the technology we're building wildfire robotics. We can make a difference next year. How do you deal with hard times? Your, your new, your new dad, uh, you're, you're founding a new business. Do you have anything that works well for you? You, you know, mentioned earlier, you like to get out into nature. Is that something that's, that works for you? What, what, what's a good yeah, process um, on your side? my wife always says I'm, I'm busy. And I think part of, part of my, my strategy is I like, if I'm having a hard time with something and I'm sort of beating my head, head against it, not getting anywhere, I go do something else fairly active and, and get small wins. So that could be woodwork. That could be sports. That could be music. Um, just doing something different, but you're actually progressing. Like I don't, I don't recuperate by going and laying on the couch. I recuperate by going and doing something, but that's different. That way I can come back to that hard problem with a different perspective and, and keep going. I love that. And then Peter, that's the last question I had. I like about the business or if there's anything you want to get off your chest. For us at Wildfire Robotics, we're, we're really keen to get our technology out there and, and we're really getting some good momentum to get it there. We have lots of interested parties, a lot of pilot demonstrations lined up with different organizations. And I'm finding now that we can get from initial call to pilot demonstration really quickly, which is fantastic. So we just got to solve the other piece, actually have that piece of equipment that can go out there and, and really do well. So, you know, this is sort of me saying, if you're interested in wildfire technology or you have connections in wildfire or you're just interested in a new company doing something really cool, 
please reach out to me because I'm, you know, we are looking for people to help us do this. Uh, and, uh, and it's going to be a really exciting ride, you know, to get to work out in nature with robotics. That's a great combination of things. So I'm just, I'm just thrilled to be doing it. Peter, it's been a lot of fun and really appreciate the convo we had a few months ago. And I just knew that we, we had to do an episode. So thanks so much for coming on. And it was a lot of fun to get better insights into the, into the space and what you're working on. Uh, so Absolutely. thanks for sharing Thank the you, time. I like what you're doing. And I really like the name of the podcast, uh, because it is hard, uh, but hard things can be really worthwhile if you enjoy the process and not the end goal. So thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.